Hey friends, welcome to episode 22 of the Waterworks Ministries podcast. I am Reverend Karen Weiss. I am your host of the podcast and today we're going to be kicking it with Job. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that Waterworks Ministries is a ministry first and foremost of prayer and it's prayer that provides empowerment, knowledge, and nurture for the body of Christ. Um, We do this through spiritual direction, coaching, training, uh, retreats, and advocacy for social justice work. Um, We have a couple slots open for the rest of the spring and a couple in the summer. So if you are interested in spiritual direction or coaching or having Waterworks come and do a training or retreat at your location with your group, please send us an email or contact us on Facebook and we'll be happy to talk with you and schedule those things um, for the benefit of your group or relationship with God. But now, without further ado, uh, we're going to get started. And today, uh, as the name of the podcast implies, Kicking It With Job, we're going to be talking about Job. And this is really a part one of two um, kind of episode. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Job and a couple things that we see in the book And then next time, we're going to be talking about action in the world. So I seem to be talking a lot about Job recently. Uh, For me personally, whenever I go through experiences that bring up grief, um, suffering, or questioning God's action in the world, I immediately think of Job. And I think that most of us have felt this way you know, at one time or another, like God might be punishing us or, you know, maybe everything was going wrong and we want to make, we want to have God make things right or potentially even that God has left us or abandoned us. Um, I think in our culture, we've kind of encouraged this false belief that righteousness or being a good person equals prosperity and peace. Um, The questions, you know, why is God doing this to me? Or why has God allowed this to happen? Seem to come up in so many different situations. And so we have this mistaken belief that if we're good people, then we are entitled to get what we want. The universe or God owes it to us. And unfortunately, you know, based on Christian theology, this belief is totally untrue. If we fast forward from Job to the New Testament, you know, Jesus does not promise us daisies and and sunshine or unicorns that poop rainbows, although that would be pretty awesome. Um, And unfortunately, we, we expect daisies and sunshine for being good Christians. We're like, oh, well, my life should be easy or hassle-free or I shouldn't have to suffer because I'm a good Christian. And Jesus actually promises us the opposite. He tells his followers, blessed are the ones who are persecuted. Blessed are the ones who see trouble in their lifetimes. Now, I know that Jesus says this, 
and this episode is being released on March 25th, which is Palm Sunday. So we are looking towards Holy Week. We're looking towards the suffering and pain of Christ. But generally, I choose not to believe this most of the time. I expect my life to go smoothly. In all honesty, I'm used to getting my own way most of the time. Or I'm able to negotiate a compromise where all parties win. So when it feels like, you know, we go from a place of favor and protection to a place of disaster and and seeming abandonment, it can really shake our faith and can make us angry, bitter, or feel lost or listless. And so this is what brings us to Job. And so you know where we're headed. I'm going to highlight two ideas from the book of Job that I think are important to our season two theme of evil and or spiritual warfare. So the first thing that I'm going to highlight um, is that God actually points out Job to Hasatan. And I'll get into what Hasatan means in that section. But then the second thing is that God cares about what we care about even if God chooses not to act on our communication with him. But first, I think we might need an overview of the book of Job. So here is the Karen condensed version of 42 chapters of poem and prose in the Old Testament. So Job had sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, I'm sure a beautiful and productive family, a happy marriage, and a healthy body. You could not ask for anything more at this time in history. Then everything came crashing down around him. God pointed out the righteousness of Job to Hasatan, and then God removed the large hedge of protection from Job and his family. But God was still protecting Job, even in the midst of this disaster. His children were killed by a storm, his servants and flocks were killed or stolen, and his wife became less than supportive of his condition, suggesting that Job should curse God and die. Now, in the midst of all of this, he developed an itchy and painful skin disease and ended up sitting outside of the town by one of the gates. So when Job's friends came to see him, they barely recognized him. They tore their robes, sat with him in silence, And for seven days, they were with Job because of their compassion for him as friends. And no one said anything because the grief was just too much. Words were meaningless for a full week. Then Job speaks and the conversations begin. He defends himself, stating that he is righteous and has not sinned. And his friends suggest some more strongly than others, that he is wrong and he must have done something to deserve this suffering because righteous people just don't suffer. Back and forth they go. His friends are relentless. Job goes from wanting to defend himself at some point before God to wanting an immediate hearing. Job has become impatient and is bitter and frustrated. Then there's an interlude about wisdom and the story goes back to Job's conversation with his friends. At the end, God shows up to Job 
in a whirlwind and starts questioning him. Were you there when I created the stars? Where were you when Leviathan came into being? Did you create the heavens and earth? I think God essentially says, Hey, Job, let me put this into perspective for you. Here are many of the wonderful and loving things that I have done in the universe and what I get to see every day. Are you aware of these things? Do you know what joy is here? I have given each creature its place in the world, and that, include, that includes humans. Have you done such things? Job ends up being humbled, realizing that he knew about God, but did not really know about God. He says that he heard with his ear, but now sees with his eye, which leads to repentance in dust and ashes. Job's friends are chastised by God, and God accepts Job's prayer for his friends. And so after Job's prayer, he amasses more children and livestock than he had before. Now on to the very beginning. The first three chapters in this book are maybe troublesome is the word I would use um, because we have this interplay between the divine angels, between God, between Hasatan, and Job is kind of the subject of these discussions. And so at the very beginning of the book, Job is described by the narrator as one whose life is balanced and complete. The numbers used to describe Job and his family and his flocks are symbolic as seven is a holy number, three is a holy number, and 10 is thought of as complete and perfect, as are their multiples. So Job has seven sons and three daughters, seven plus three equals 10. He's got 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, adding up to 10,000, and then 500 plus 500 other animals to total 1,000. So not only is Job described as blameless and whole, but his entire family is described in that way. Even his livestock is described uh, symbolically as whole and complete, perfect. Job's sons even get along with each other and they take care of their sisters. This is incredible and unusual. And Job offers sacrifice as a way of sort of hedging his bets in some ways, just in case one of his family members have sinned. And so we start out with this description of Job and his family and his flocks and, and the perfect life that he's leading. And then we get the description of the divine court. Now we as English readers need to be very careful that we're not interpreting the word Satan with a capital S as it is written in the NIV and the NRSV as a personification of evil, like we think of Satan today. The word that's used in Hebrew is hasatan, which is a noun that relates to a verb, satan, meaning to accuse or to oppose. 
So Hasatan means the adversary or accuser in general. It's not the name of someone or something in, I think, the Ogabuga way that some of us think of as the devil or the enemy today. That's not what it was referring to. So it's not a name of something. It's just a general commentary on the role that this divine angel or being plays. And it's interesting to me that the understanding of evil and who causes it has shifted within the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. At first, God causes everything, both good and bad. And then in some of the later um, Old Testament books, we start to see this shift in that the air quote, bad characteristics of God are shifted to a different persona, one who is external to God. And in the case of the book of Job, this external locus, I guess you could call it, would be Hasatan. In later texts from the Old Testament, it is Hasatan who brings forth judgment against Israel, not God. And it appears that in the book of Job, Hasatan is not specifically an adversary or accuser of God, but a divine being who brings attention to sinful or corrupt people. So this accuser, Hasatan, roams the earth, apparently looking for disloyal or sinful people to bring to God's attention. Sounds kind of weird, but you know, let's roll with it. So if we go back to, you know, the second chapter of Job, it seems like God mentions Job in what appears to be a preemptive strike against Hasatan bringing others to God's attention. So God mentions Job, who not only is above reproach, but who is unique in all of the earth. There's none like Job. He's, he's righteous. He's special. He does what is required of him and loves God in the process. And as we see, if you go back and read, of course God and Hasatan hold opposing views of Job's character, which is how this whole story can play out in the first place. One of my commentaries on Job says that Hasatan, quote, is depicted as one who who accuses precisely those whom God is inclined to favor, end quote. So Hasatan is challenging God on Job's righteousness because the accuser believes that Job has been provided a hedge of protection. And when a person is protected, of course that person's going to praise God. Of course they're going to be righteous because it's like this this circle. Oh, well, God is protecting me, so I'm going to praise God, and I'm protected and going to praise God, and I praise God, and therefore I'm protected, and, you know, this round and round and round. So Hasatan challenges God and is like, hey, Well, of course, Job will praise you. 
And it's interesting because it's not only a jab at Job's motivation for why he praises God and why he continues to be righteous, but it also seems like it's a backhanded jab at God's activity in protecting some people more than others. Thus, Hasatan challenges God to break down this hedge of protection that has been surrounding Job and his family, that has been providing this blessing. And we go into you know, this time, and the rest of the book looks at what happens when this hedge of protection that has surrounded Job for all of his life, what happens when that disappears? And to Job's credit, in the trials that he is faced with, he does not actually curse God. Instead, he goes to defend himself and his righteousness, his blamelessness, his purity. And his friends say that, of course, Job, you must have done something wrong because that's how it works. If you sin, you get punished. If you are morally upright and follow, you know, the standards of the day, then of course you will be blessed. Job must have done something terrible to make this tragedy fall on himself and his family. So his friends try to convince him that he is at fault and should admit his sin and get on with it. Then he'll be restored to health. Then he'll, you know, potentially get his family back, whatever. Um... Job is not playing that game with his friends. And so he ends up circling around to actually accuse God of injustice and unfairness. And this is the stance that Job really um, roots himself in. Job says, I am righteous. I know this. I have not done anything to bring this upon me. I want to be able to defend myself in front of El Shaddai, the Holy One. But once God shows up in this whirlwind, Job is rendered almost speechless because somehow he realizes what a narrow perspective he's had on life. God shows that Job's rigid moral legalism and whatever, you know, very prescriptive worldview he's living in doesn't fit with the chaos in the created or natural world. Right and wrong and the expectations regarding what should happen when one acts rightly or righteously, it doesn't fit most of the time. So Job ends up admitting that he was out of line and then, you know, goes and repents and, and ashes. And the fascinating thing to me is that God does not actually punish Job for his, mm, for his fervent prayer, we'll call it, in saying that he is right. In fact, God confirms that what Job has, says, has said about God and himself is correct. God goes on to discipline Job's friends for speaking folly 
for speaking about this rigid moral legalism worldview where righteousness equals prosperity and sin equals pain and suffering. Um, he said, God basically says, that's not right. And so God tells Job's friends, take seven bulls and seven rams to Job so that he can sacrifice them on behalf of you. And also, Job, you're going to pray for your friends. And if you pray for your friends, then I will not punish them or discipline them according to their sin in what they have said against me. So Job does pray for his friends, and they are forgiven. And once that happens, God ends up giving Job twice as much as he had before. So twice as much livestock, double the amount of children. I feel bad for his wife. Um, you know, but Job is restored is the, um, I believe the word that's used in our English translation. And so now we're getting into the part two of this podcast where God cares about how we feel and what we think even if God doesn't necessarily act on our prayers. Now, in relation to the doubling of Job's prosperity, I was talking about this story with a colleague, and she brought up that Job doesn't respond about the loss of his children, servants, and wealth. And just because he received twice what he had before, doesn't negate the loss or grief that he felt. It's an interesting perspective, I thought. And I think that this experience dramatically changed how Job felt about God. It would have changed his relationship with God, and I would think his relationship with his family, and I would hope that it would have created some kind of gratitude in that. But I also wonder if the trauma that Job experienced might have been etched on his face from that time forward, in addition to the joy that the new children to the fourth generation brought. Now, in reading some commentaries about this book, I came across an interesting reminder. The Jews were not afraid to bring, to bring their complaints to God repeatedly with focus and with heart. One of my favorite examples of this, apart from the book of Judges, um, which is the circling of the downfall of Israel in all of its craziness, but that pattern of the Israelites turn away from God, they are oppressed by a, for, a foreign king or ruler, they cry out to God for a certain set of years, God raises up a judge or a leader, and then they are free for another segment of time, and the pattern starts over again. So apart from that, in terms of um, bringing complaints to God, another one of my favorite examples is of Hezekiah. And when the king of Assyria was trying to take over Israel and Judah, um, 
he was throwing some serious shade Hezekiah's way. And if you look at what Hezekiah did, he brought the actual letter that the king of Assyria wrote to the altar and said, okay, God, what are you going to do about this? Another person in the Old Testament that also brought his complaints to God was David. You know, oh, a man after God's own heart. And yet, in one of the more interesting passages in looking at David's life, uh, to me anyway, this is after David has an affair with Bathsheba and then sends Uriah out to be killed. So um, Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant and David is actually interceding for his first son to Bathsheba because the narrator has told us and David knows that this son will die because of David's sin. Now, whether or not that might be theologically accurate, that was the perspective of the writer of the book. So we're going with it. When the child is born, he knows that it's not good. And so David hides and prays while his son is still alive. He doesn't eat. Um, he sends all his servants away. And so while the son is still alive, David intercedes and fasts, attempting to change God's mind, saying, hey, listen, look at what I'm willing to do to have this son live. Um, but God doesn't change the course of events, and David's son dies. Um, and then after this happens, David gets up, he takes a shower or whatever they did, puts on oil, dresses himself, and goes out to eat because he knows that he tried whatever he could in prayer, and the situation is what it is. And I think we can learn so much from reading the Old Testament and looking for these situations where the Israelites cry out to God and make their discontent known. Um, and Job is one of those perfect kind of examples of just being, just bringing it to God and saying, hey, this is not right, and I'm going to tell you why I think so. And it's fascinating to me because some scholars date the development of Job to around the time of Genesis 10, which is like four or 5,000 years ago. It's before the Levitical priesthood, before the Ten Commandments, even before Jacob becomes Israel and God makes the covenant with Abram, because that happens um, in Genesis 15, and the promise to Abram is in Genesis 12. So this is before all of that. Other Near Eastern cultural tradi traditions have similar stories in their histories as well. And I think these tidbits of information are important because it tells us that the world has not been fair or just for a really long time, thousands of years even. And so for thousands of years, people have been crying out to God for vindication and just resolutions, regardless of whether or not it happens in their lifetime. And Job was one of the first in Jewish history to be our example, I think, to, to cry out to God, to bring the injustice and suffering to God, saying, 
I will bring my complaint directly to the creator until he and only he does something about it. Now we can see this as arrogance or cockiness or maybe a haughty attitude, but it's what the Jewish people did and still do. And I think it's what we're called to do as Christians as well, or anyone who believes in, you know, a higher power or universe that is active in this world. And as, as a Christian, I've heard people say, you know, in looking at Good Friday um, from, from Palm Sunday, well, I'm carrying my cross like Jesus told me to, or I guess suffering is part of my life and I can't do anything about it. Heavy sigh. And so those people end up doing nothing, prayer included, to ask for the stuff, the suffering to stop. There's this like reticence, like, oh, I have no control over this. And so I'm just going to kind of push through it or muddle through it or whatever. And I, I believe that according to our scripture, to our history, to me as a United Methodist, um, that attitude is complete, complete garbage. Um, we, you've heard the episodes on free will. Um, you know that I'm a big proponent of free will. And so just to sit back and let things happen to us without making a choice to change in any way, prayer included, I think shows that we're giving up some part of our own freedom in, in being human. And, and we have so many, so many examples of people bringing their complaints to God to stop this suffering that's in this world. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. Go through the whole, all of scripture, and we have so many great examples. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the book of Judges and the cycles that the Israelites went through. Even when they turned from the ways of the Lord and were oppressed, they cried out to God for relief, retribution, and salvation. If they can do it, so can we. Things like cancer, genocide, war, famine, racial tension. These are just some of the things that we can relentlessly bring to God in prayer. Now, Job, as the righteous protagonist of the book named after him, reminds us that we can bring anything to God in prayer, which includes feelings of anger, disappointment, despair, frustration, and challenge. I think so many of us are afraid to bring feelings of anger or challenge to God because we have this strange understanding that, oh, God is holy and therefore I shouldn't be angry with God or I shouldn't challenge God. And that's not, that's not how relationships work. If we are in relationship with a personal God, one, one that wants to know us and wants, you know, us to know 
the divine source of being, we have to be willing to share all of our emotions. And so if we think that we're being wronged, regardless of whether we're right or not, we can share that with God. And I think that, you know, when suffering first begins, we often fight against it as a way to feel like we're doing something. Um, Like, oh, well, I've got this. I can go through this process or these steps and, and it'll make it better. And if it's long suffering, hopefully we remember to turn to God repeatedly and pray against the suffering that is in this world. I think that it should be our first response to suffering, not our only response, but one of our first responses to suffering should be prayer. And to be honest enough with God to want to defend oneself, to say that things aren't fair, to say that suffering is despicable, is what we're reminded to do by Job. We're not called to be reticent, but to be prayer active in the midst of suffering. In my Old Testament classes in seminary, we were required in our homework each week to come up with theological insights about God from the passages that we were reading. And I took the Pentateuch and Joshua and then Old Testament historical books and poems and that's a lot to go through Um, (laughs) and as much as I thought that this exercise to go through and write down you know 10 theological insights about God was redundant and boring when you go through the Bible from Genesis to the Song of Songs having to write these, you know, several sentences about God and God's character for two semesters, I started to notice a pattern of surprisingly love, grace, and mercy. Um, But at the same time, those of us that were in the class together and probably people who took, took the classes before us, we saw that justice is not always served in ways that people desired. God doesn't do really what we want most of the time. So we have to be real with God when things don't go our way. And I think Job is a really great example of this. We learn from Job that God can handle and actually welcomes our prayers about injustice. We must be honest with God and others and how we feel, what's bothering us, what weighs heavy on our hearts, We shouldn't accept others' trite or traditional explanations for our suffering because righteousness doesn't equal prosperity. Suffering doesn't equal sin or moral failure. And God is the one who exercises free will and doesn't prevent suffering in this world. God is the one who fills our cups, who provides us with safety and security, but is also the one that removes the hedge of protection. And so we speak to God. We tell God, hey, this is what I think about this situation. 
and then we go and hopefully do something about it with action. And so that is where we're going to go in our next podcast to be, to be released the second Thursday in April. And I hope you're enjoying this. I am loving doing the research and teasing out some additional things on Job and, and suffering and pain and hope that it has brought serious blessing to you um, in this time. For those of you who are going to celebrate Easter, uh, may it be blessed and may you have time, joyous time, with your family and friends during one of our biggest Christian holidays. So grace and peace to you and happy Easter.